2: The classic story. You see it over and over in cinema. It's this idea of leaving home, finding the elixir, and then bringing it back home, coming back and making that full circle and kind of doing that over and over again. The whole idea, the reason we tell the story, you know, we do it through all this fantasy and mythology throughout the ages, but the truth of the matter always remains the same that when whatever you're grown up into, in order for you to become a fully integrated fully self actualized person you have to go against what you were given you have to go through a process of putting down the persona that was built and given to you the identity all of that that you were given as you were born you have if you want to become an adult uh, according to the hero's journey you have to leave that metaphorical home and go out there and find your own elixirs. And eventually you integrate it back into the identity you were given, because some of that identity was true and good and and useful,
0: And they said that you had heard about us by way of one of our former guests, Brad Montague, who um, I thought the world of. And I thought, yeah, if Brad referred you to me, this was kind of a no-brainer. I was like, yes, let's have this conversation. But
4: before we get into... Brad is one of of my best
2: buddies, and he is (laughs) one of the uh, most inspiring friends that I have. And uh, so, yeah, uh, Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so before you, we get into your work, I want to start by asking you a question that I, I think is always interesting to ask people who have built careers in the arts and one that I've asked a lot of people, and that is what did your parents do for work and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life?
2: And your that career? is such a good question. And uh, so my parents are, it's almost like uh, I feel like the universe tricked them into having babies. Because, like, I, I guess I don't know if the universe is uh, that... Uh, um, you know, intentional about getting me here into the mix. But I don't really know how it happened. They're not together anymore. They are, although they have some personality traits that may be meshed, they're also, they couldn't be more different. So my dad is a finance guy at a Fortune 500 company. And my mom is... Has never really been able to have a job. She's never really, uh, and you know, people that follow my podcast or, or come see me do talks or whatever. I am really open about my mom and talk about how she's my biggest inspiration. She's where I get all the creative juice, and uh, but she was never able to turn it into a career, and she was never really to ha- able to turn anything into a career, and it actually caused a lot of problems for. Her. But, um, but yeah, so the. the yeah, they're kind of two sides of very different coins, but it's no wonder that I end up being the uh, the money plus art guy, um, yeah. given the roots of my DNA.
0: What advice did they give you
2: uh, growing up in terms of
0: career paths? And the other one, the thing I wonder is, do you have siblings? And did your siblings turn out wildly different than you did?
2: Yeah, so I'm... You know, I think I am kind of the black sheep of my (laughs) family. Like I, you know, I grew up in my dad's house with my dad and my stepmom, and they're both corporate people. And I think my three uh, siblings that I lived with all kind of went the corporate business route, and so I'm the only one who is drawing pictures and being a total weirdo and and all that kind of jazz. And so my dad, I think, you know, God love him. He tried to. You know, help me and mentor me in any way that he could. But in a lot of ways, he just didn't really understand uh, my potential. So he didn't really know, you know, whether I was good or not at creative work or whatever. He didn't really know whether there was any, uh, you know, career potential there or not. So he didn't really know how to steer me. And now, after I built a career, he's actually given me tons of great business advice, and he is probably my number one mentor. But growing up that was not the case, I think he was mystified by what what am I gonna do with my life? And then my mom, I feel like I learned the most from my mom but it was not from any of her advice, although she did give me a lot of advice, much of it was really terrible, but but she did give me advice. Um, um, I did learn a lot from her path and the thing that I learned from her uh, at an early age was I watched her, you know we both have ADHD, I don't think she knows that, um, and, and maybe I shouldn't say that since I'm not a doctor, but I got it from somewhere and I have a lot in common with this woman. And I watched her kind of try to take that different type of neurobiology and repress it and try to go the traditional route and try to have the, you know, husband and two kids and uh, picket fence and the this job and whatever, and fail miserably the first time around, try it all over again and fail and and leave another family. And then just eventually, slowly but surely, just uh, kind of go from tragedy to bigger tragedy by trying to live someone else's path or a more traditional path. And so from like 18, I could see, like people would be like, what are you going to do for a job? And I was like, I'm not going to have a job. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to make money, but I'm not going to go climb a corporate ladder, I know that path leads to failure. I watched yeah. my mom do it over and over and over. I tr- I watched her try to do the normal thing and just continue to flop. And so I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the normal thing. I'm going to figure out how to embrace my weirdness and my neurodiversity and and go all in on my what makes me different instead of trying to repress myself and be uh, like everybody else. So yeah. that's Definitely what I learned from her, although it wasn't, uh, I had to learn it from her. Um, I don't know, I struggled to say mistake, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I can relate to the ADD thing. You and I sound uh, like we have a lot of different things in common. Yeah. <laughs> How old were you when you made that decision? And a lot of parents are listening to this. And normally I ask the question of what do you think parents should be talking to their kids about, particularly if they have creative kids? But I want to flip the question on its head this time because I know there are kids listening to this as well because parents use our content homeschool their children. What do you think kids should be asking their parents about this, and how should they have a conversation with their parents about pursuing a, a creative path?
2: Yeah, so I, I have a uh, a ton to say on this subject, and uh, okay, here is how I think of this. So I think that oh. The first thing you asked me was, how old was I when I had that realization? And it was when I was about 18. Mm -hmm. And the thing that happened was I discovered band posters and I discovered these people that were creative weirdos like me and like my mom, but they had gone on the journey of crystallizing that weirdness. Like instead of repressing it and running away from it, they leaned into it on a personal journey to find their creative voice, find their style and crystallize it into a, uh, you know, a point of view that was uh, that they could do on command. You know, I think it's I don't know if it's a Dolly Parton uh, quote or what, but uh, I feel like it gets attributed to everybody. But it's this idea of find out who you are and then do it on purpose and that these people did that. And I was like, oh, they're not you know, repressing their weird, they're leaning into it and they've actually made a career out of it and they're making this gorgeous, meaningful work out of it. And so that, when I was 18, I was like, I'm going, I'm going to do something like that, but it's going to embody whatever makes me weird. And so here's the thing as, you know, looking back the way that I look at it, I think a lot about neurodiversity. I think Mm -hmm. about, I love that term and it really uh, speaks to me on an emotional level. And I think about, um, this idea, Seth Godin talks about this all the time, but he talks about how, you know, the school system that we have and, and the mainstream reality we have right now is set up on the back of the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, there's a lot of good things about it, There's a lot of bad things about it. But um, the fact of the matter is, you know, our school was built on it and it was built to make interchangeable parts. So like if you think about the assembly line and you think about cogs in a machine, like yeah, there's all the cogs in the machine, but there's also the people working on the assembly line are also interchangeable parts. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that we would uh, you know, create these schools that would be able to find the most average people, the most average qualities of humanity. Like what are the things if if humans are interchangeable parts that we need to rely on? What are the things that are the most common attributes to the uh, most amount of people and how do we exploit those things? And so our school is set up to find the most average things and yeah, the most extreme version of that or the most impressive or the uh, the, the most productive version of the kind of average thing that you'll find in a human brain. And for some people that really, really works. But the fact of the matter is what ends up happening is humans aren't that good at being machines and the mm-hmm. machines we're building now are a lot better at being cogs and doing those repetitive functions and do, and as AI and robots and all that stuff start taking over, all of a sudden, people don't need to be interchangeable parts. Uh-huh. And so although I think about neurodiversity as a thing of like, let's celebrate the fact that people on the spectrum and ADHD people and and people with dyslexia have different types of brains and let's lean into that because that's what we need from humans these days. I also Mm -hmm. think about neurodiversity in terms of every single brain is unique and let's lean into that. So if I was talking to parents or I was talking to kids, that's the thing I'm thinking about right now is Yes, our system is set up to find the most average, standardized things. That's why we have these standardized tests. But the fact of the matter is, the future is going to be given to the humans that can recognize, that can go into. You know, I think this is the hero's journey. This is the, this is the uh, the journey that I think humans are all supposed to go on is finding out who you are, meaning is it that's different about you and then yeah. developing it and then proving its value to the world by not just telling people uh with your resume uh but showing them by building things so mm-hmm. rather than looking for certificates uh let's build projects and so i think mm-hmm. i think about this all the time and i think we have a lot i think the next batch of humans over the next 100 years are going to learn a lot not from the traditional career path but the career path of creative people yeah. That, that not just, they find out who they are, they develop it into this crystallized potential, and then they don't even wait, the best creatives don't even wait to get picked. They go build their own things that prove that value. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, I learned a lot from that creatively. Yeah. I'm teaching a lot of creatives that same path, that creative career path, but I think that even people in... The finance world and the and the accounting world and the business world are going to learn are going to be looking to those people on how you approach career creatively, mm-hmm. leaning yeah. into that neurodiversity. Sorry, I went on a huge don't, rant. No, <laughs> these are this is phenomenal. Like this is there the kind of um, I
0: it, love. It's it's funny because uh, it makes me. You know, I was writing about this this morning, and you know, it, it was kind of hilarious. Like I was at dinner with my parents on Sunday night, and my mom and I got into this conversation about, you know, marriage and kids and all that. And they're like, would you be willing to meet anybody that we introduced you? I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a game. I said, but I said, I'm wondering what you're going to tell their parents about what I do for work. And that was one of those things where she's like, you're right. That's going to be a problem for most Indian parents because we're not right. going to be able to sell them on the fact that this is not normal, and right. you know it's not stable. And I was like, "Well, thanks." I yeah. mean, you're you're not you're overlooking a lot of different things here. Like you, my dad was like, "I didn't mean to undersell you," but uh, it was kind of hilarious because it was like, "Okay, I've written two books with a publisher. I yeah. do speaking gigs. I'm not living at your house anymore. I just raised a significant seed investment from an investor." And my mom says, "So don't get offended, but have you thought about a part-time job?" I was like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> You're just kind of a, you know, it was like <laughs> ten years, two books, a seed investment from a venture capitalist, and in her mind, she was like part-time job. Yes, and I I've said been no. There. I, I said know, early no. on.
2: <laughs> First five years of my career, I would have those conversations with my parents. You know, in terms of, I would have, ha- like I said, like you, I had published books with major publishers and I had worked with some of the biggest companies in the world with my illustration and da 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 da. And so, and, you know, I'd get comments like, you don't know anybody that needs a uh, graphic design job at the local newspaper, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. I don't know anybody that needs that. Um, so yeah, I totally relate well, to that. Well, it's funny
0: because I, I, you know, in that conversation, you know, my joke is always that all my writing is an ongoing attempt to have a conversation with my mom that I can't have with her face-to-face. Right, yeah. uh, but I, I wrote this this morning and I wanted to, to bring it up just because it, you know, it was kind of a thought process on what you just said about the fact that we have a system, right? And what I said was if everyone in a society who felt the pressure to conform gave in there would be no progress. Throughout history, as those who have challenged conventional wisdom and defied the status quo that produced unconventional results. But doing this is more psychological than it is tactical. You have to get over the fears of what other people will think. Parents, peers, society, you have to put something on the line for what you believe in, money, time, and the possibility. For every opportunity, there's an opportunity cost. Instead of a future in which everything is guaranteed, but little is possible, you choose one where nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible, and the world around you will pressure you to conform. The systems and structures that have enabled the world to exist will chew you up and spit you out. They will punch you in the face and kick you when you're down in the hopes that you don't do the one thing that will make it all change, and that is to get back up and fight. Yeah. And so I wonder, knowing that this system that people are in is so deeply embedded and has programmed them with these invisible scripts that dictate every choice and behavior in their lives, How do they, despite all of that, um, make the choices that deep down they want to make?
2: I can give you a bunch of answers to that. But the one that has made the biggest impact on me is realizing that, yeah, there's a system that has been built to enable us and encourage us to conform uh, maybe more than ever throughout history. However, this is also the freaking one story that we've always told since the dawn of time, and it's the hero's journey. And I've gotten so much solace and so much uh, encouragement and and breakthrough on the back of understanding the hero's journey as uh, Joseph Campbell kind of put together as well as Christopher Vogler for the writer's journey book, Um, he kind of simplified it. But it's this idea that, you know, the classic story, you see it over and over in cinema. It's this idea of leaving home, finding the elixir, and then bringing it back home, coming back and making that full circle and kind of doing that over and over again. The whole idea, the reason we tell the story, you know, we do it through all this fantasy and mythology throughout the ages, but the truth of the matter always remains the same, that when whatever you're grown up into, in order for you to become a fully integrated fully self actualized person you have to go against what you were given you have to go through a process of putting down the persona that was built and given to you the identity all of that that you were given as you were born you have if you want to become an adult uh, according to the hero's journey you have to leave that metaphorical home and go out there and find your own elixirs. And eventually, you integrate it back into the identity you were given because some of that identity was true and, and good and, and useful. Um, and so for me personally, this is kind of a you know philosophical answer, but what has helped me the m- most more than anything is to find those frameworks that help me Ground myself in, you know, this. I, if you go into the 12 steps of the hero's journey, according to Christopher Vogler, you can go through there and you can see what phase am I in? What part am I stuck in? And for some reason, the hard path of your life and becoming your best self and your most truest self, that hard path is so much easier for me when I can ground myself and say, okay, I'm in this stage. Uh, I'm in this season. I don't need to be harvesting when I should be planting. And there's something about uh, just the, the the. that's why I think we like stories and narratives, is, is something about sense-making and meaning-making out of seeing your life as a narrative and a story. And I don't think that's fanciful. I don't think that's even just like philosophical uh, mumbo-jumbo. I think that we, I think the neurons in our brain firing, uh, billions of neurons firing together as separate entities, I think the way that they come together and you get a sense of who you are, that emergent phenomenon comes from, and this isn't just my idea, this comes yeah. from uh, neurologists, that uh, that firing together, that you get a sense of who you are is neurons telling a story to itself, mm-hmm. that you're the story of, I'm the story of Andy. Like that's that's who I am. And so I think for me, storytelling, leaning into the mythology and the, and the hero's journey and trying to place myself on that path and understand what kind of narrative is trying to be uh, birthed for me. Because what you end up finding is, oh, there's clear parts in the story where you're going to meet a threshold guardian. You're going to meet the, when you're right on the edge of wonderland, you're ready to step in. You're going to meet the person who's trying to stop you. And often those are the people that are closest to you. They're trying to protect you. But the fact of the matter is once you realize, oh, they're a threshold guardian, you can push past it. So for me, that's been the most powerful tool. And I've relayed that to the creative journey, um, on multiple occasions as well. I love that. Uh let's talk about the ADD for a bit. Uh sure. I think that
0: you brought up something interesting and, and I can relate. You know, I think I, I got fired from every job I had and I think largely it was because I I found it like just unbearable to sit for 8 hours a day at an office. And so much so that recently I got slammed at a conference because I challenged, you know, they asked it was a conference ironically where I was asked to come and give a talk on attention management. And the <laughs> negative feedback Basically, they slammed me for basically slamming the hotel ballroom, and I said, "Look, you guys asked for my advice. It's not going to be agreeable to everybody, and maybe you think that I'm not all buttoned up, but the hotel ballrooms are nonsense. Like you should get rid of them. If you want people to pay attention, this is a terrible way to do it." And they right. thought it was like disrespectful and all that. And I was like, "Okay, whatever. Like you didn't hire me to basically come here and you know spout the same old bullshit." But right. one of the things that I think that I've seen with people with ADD or dyslexia is this thing that appears on the surface to be a massive disadvantage ends up becoming one of their greatest strengths. Because as an ADD person, and probably you can relate to this, what I know is that when you're interested in something, you have an ability to focus at an obsessive level and do things at record speed that normal people can't do. And and so I wonder, you know, what's your experience with that? Uh, And how do people transform perceived disadvantages into advantages.
2: Yeah. So I'll give you a a few different answers there uh, to that. Um, So yeah, I completely agree. And I, you know, I, I just want to tread lightly. Anytime I go into this kind of mental health uh, topic, I always kind of say, look, I know, uh, I know my own experience. And then I know a lot of people that have had a lot of good experiences with medication and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want anything that I say to be perceived as medical advice, just in terms of it's no judgment upon whether you medicate for whatever thing you have going on in your brain. Uh, But I just want to say that I think, you know, and and I'm not the first person to say this, but when you build a system that's for the standardized brain, then Brains that fall outside of that are instantly categorized as broken. Like that's not the type of brain that they're looking for, so there's some kind of problem with it. And I think oftentimes a lot of medication, not always, but a lot of medication is given to help it standardize that brain. And the fact of the matter is, like we said before, as everything gets automated that can get automated and robots get a lot better at those standardizations than humans, uh, Though you're actually... Um, you're killing off the mutation right? You're killing off the potential for progress and for seeing a different angle. And for me personally, with ADHD, one of the things that I've always been good at is disassociation. So there's always novel connections in my brain that I can make because I can say turtle and the next thing say cereal bar. Like they can go from this thing to that thing. I can just go jump all over. I can just reach back in a grab bag of my subconscious and just pour out, pull out the strangest, weirdest things. And I can make novel connections. And that's really helpful when it comes to creative thinking. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I noticed was, uh, you know, when I first got started in my creative business, I was all creative and no business. And I ended up, it kind of, I got lucky at the start with, uh, you know, the way blogs were and they were giving me some uh, some exposure and I got a few jobs and things were kind of going well. But then the recession happened and and everything kind of got dark and all of a sudden I couldn't get... Uh, any jobs through the door. And in that kind of dark moment, I was at rock bottom. And sometimes when there are some people turn to, you know, meth when they're in rock bottom. But the thing that I turned to was something darker than meth. It was business books and uh, and marketing magazines. And I started reading that stuff thinking, oh, I'm like a total sellout, but I got to figure this business stuff out. And what, what ended up happening that totally blew my mind and, and opened up the limitations on how I saw myself was the people on the covers of these magazines, these people that were seen as like the unicorns of the business world, people like Steve Jobs and and Jeff Bezos and Gary Vaynerchuk and, and whoever the list goes goes on and on and on. I kept noticing, you know, these people that were like, where does this magical business creature come from? They're one in a century, one in a generation. And I'm like, no, I knew 50 people like this in my high school. You know my closest friends who OD'd. uh, You know because the system didn't recognize them or celebrate them or help develop them or understand what's valuable about them. They had the same sorts of weird brains as the people you're celebrating, but we don't have tests to pick them out. We don't have the metal detectors to find that kind of gold. It's off the radar, and so they don't self value. And so for me, was I'm reading these magazines and I'm like, whoa, business really the marketplace rewards unique it rewards innovative right and so the fact that i have a brain that's you know one out of uh 20 brains is an advantage not a disadvantage and if i can figure out what does this unique brain do mm-hmm. i can maximize its potential and do something in the marketplace that nobody else can do yeah. and so I've tried to lean into that ever, ever since that time when I, but you know, for me, that's, uh, that showed me the power of representation too, because I could Uh see there was something about needing to see myself, uh, in successful people before I could lift those limits in my mind. Yeah. So. Let's talk about
0: this idea of business and creativity. I think we're we're really, you know, like we're at this point, I think going into an interesting exploration of the intersection between art and commerce. And it's one that is interesting for me because I particularly because I recently wrote a book called An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. Uh, yeah. And I, I want to ask yep. you about this, you know, as we kind of make our way into this whole idea of this intersection. Uh, you know, it, it, one of the things that I noticed as a, as a byproduct of writing this book is that in the world of, of social media, where we can get instant validation from strangers on the internet, where there's endless amounts of p- potential attention, people don't have hobbies anymore. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, true. they just have side hustles. And yeah, that that, like literally every hobby has turned into a side hustle. And I think, as somebody who has made a living off of your art, I wonder how you think about that, and and how you think about the value of creativity for its own sake. Because when I look at the people who have had successful careers in the arts, I, I realize that most of them do this for a love of the work, and that the success they've had is largely a byproduct of that love.
2: Sure. I will, I love to speak to that because one of the things that I uh, love to think about is how our brain works in binary and kind of dual thinking, Mm -hmm. like it's always black and white. It's always a this or that thing when I think almost everything is either gray or a narrative. So there's a sequence of things Uh that are actually very different to each other that happen sequentially, right? So like for me, I I believe that um, I get all of the problems that come with trying to make art for a living. I understand how, um, you know. For instance, I think the best creativity comes when you're in a state of play. That's like mm-hmm. a scientific fact. They they learned it. You know, they they have the tests and they've they've noticed that you're at your most creative when you're at a sense of play. But you can't play. Uh, you can like as soon as your job is to play, all of a sudden, it's kind of, you know, it's like an oxymoron, right? It doesn't make any sense. And so this idea, or the other thing is like, I think about how at odds, um, the the traditional way we think of productivity is with the way that creativity works. And so they're very different brain states, but it doesn't, just because you can't embody them at the same time, doesn't mean you can't sequence them. And so for me personally, it's kind of like, um, you know, when you're in practice, it's fine to be working on your form of your jumper. But once you're in the game, you've got to get all of that editing out of your brain and just get into the flow state. And so for me, it's kind of this uh, different types of thinking that you need to switch in and out of at different times. Mm-hmm. And so for me personally, when you talk about the audience of one, you know, one of those things... Um, you know, which is it? Should you listen to your audience or should you listen to yourself? And I would argue that that's dual thinking. That's a binary way of thinking about it. Yeah. And it's about listening to yourself at some times and listening to audience other times. And I don't mean, um, you know, I don't mean like sometimes you should listen to yourself, sometimes you just listen to other people. I mean sequentially you should, meaning there's an order to the way that it's done when it comes to Uh, What you shouldn't do if you're a stand-up comedian Mm -hmm. is go on stage and just say whatever you think they want to hear and then just wait until something gets a laugh, no matter what it is, and then roll with that and make it your career. What you should do is make a whole list of different things that are completely on your heart, completely authentic to you that completely light you up and that you think are hilarious, and then go get it on stage and see which of these do other people think is hilarious. And that's kind of this writing on stage, this non-dual way of approaching creativity. That's, mm-hmm. it, and to, in my opinion, it's a, that's what I like about commerce as a tool of measuring resonance. Mm-hmm. And I get that there's even some, there's pl- there's plenty of problems with even that. But yeah. I like that, uh, that idea of, um, yeah, grading your creativity because I think about up comics to me are the heroes of creativity. I, I think they're number one. And I think they get that because they have such a clear, uh, metric for resonance, which yeah. is laughter. So they know whether it's working or whether it's not. Mm. And so I don't think about it, whether it's pandering or not. I think about whether it's working. Is it, is it, so I, uh, commerce to me can just be a game, yeah. right? To, to improve. Um, yeah does that make sense? Oh yeah
0: no, no it makes it makes complete sense and I, I love like the idea of commerce as a tool for residents. One of the things I wonder about is uh, you see a lot of young kids, and you know with the age of social media and I remember this is a conversation I brought up on the show before, but Tom Brady and Oprah were uh, on Oprah's podcast together, and she was yeah. talking about how some fourteen year old girl was like you know talking about building her brand and Oprah said, "Honey, you don't have a brand. The brand comes from the work that you do and right. so. Yeah. It seems to me, you know, this is, and and it's a pattern that I've noticed as well, is that people are far more interested in getting attention from an audience than they are in creating something that is worthy of an audience's
2: attention. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I just want to hear what you have to say about that. Like what, how do we navigate that dynamic and what role has social media played in all that?
2: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. Yeah, I do, I do think it's a weird time where, you know, uh, with reality stars, you know, I think that the, the reality TV stars that are famous just for existing uh, have becoming the celebrity or becoming the royalty of the American culture. I think all cultures end up, you know, deifying and, and making royalty of somebody. And I think, you know, in our culture, I think maybe more than anybody... Uh, we do that to people like the Kardashians and, and whatever. And I know they've done a bunch of other stuff. I feel like we're going to get some trolls on here. They're like, you know, they have businesses, right? And that, you know, whatever. I don't really know enough about it, but yeah. I do think that there's this thing of, um, I think the American dream is just to be famous because you're likable like because we like your personality uh-huh. right and i think that there's there's something on a primal level yeah. that we want that we want that kind of acceptance and praise and adoration from our tribe just because of an innate value and uh you know when it comes to human to human connection and family and whether any person is valuable without how much they can contribute i think that's true we all i think every human has value whether they can contribute to society just on an innate you're breathing life and and you and you have our code and and you mean something. I I am down with that, yeah. but I don't necessarily think that you are any more valuable than anybody else mm-hmm. unless you know how to show up and provide value systematically. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things I think about a lot when it comes to creativity. I get all these people that want uh, I think about it. There's this two ways of thinking about creativity. They both end up in wide-reaching uh, fandom, but they're rooted in totally different things. And so, I think um, there's kind of two ways you can approach your creativity. You can either approach it with the self glorification in mind or an impact. Mm-hmm. So they're They're very different, but they from on the surface, I think they resemble each other,, yeah. and I think a lot of artists when they get started out, they go they're inspired by these people that have had an impact on them but uh, and because of that impact that artist has made, they do get a lot of glory and a lot of attribution for that, but they go in it just for the glory mm-hmm. instead of thinking about what was the value that I got from this creativity and I think yeah. the antidote that for me is to get really familiar with what are the types of value that exist in terms of core human drives. So there's this book called The Personal MBA with, yep. by Josh Kaufman. He t- you know about this book?
0: Yeah, Josh, familiar I with guess. It. Yeah, also, yeah we, we have the same oh, that's fantastic. So,
2: yeah. That's awesome. So he, he talks about this study. It was an Ivy League study about core human drives. He adds one to it, but he talks about, there's basically five things that drive us, the drive to learn, the drive to feel, bond, protect, and I always forget <laughs> I don't know. You can go look yeah. oh, it up. I, uh, but uh, oh, collect. I always forget that one. Collect things. We just like to collect and accumulate. But those are the five things. And I think that your art has to speak to one of them. Yeah. They might not, the people that are, uh, consuming it might not even know that it's speaking to one of their core human drives. Like one of the ones that I think is really common within the art world is identity formation, like uh, bonding and connection and saying I'm a part of this thing or this is the type of person I am and self-actualization, using your creativity as shorthand for their identity. Mm-hmm. That's how people, a lot of people get a lot of value from that yeah. and feel self, they feel uh, heard and expressed by using your work as a proxy for their identity. And so, uh, but you, I think the more that you can understand that, the more that you can become a practitioner who can show up and deliver value. If you are a person who can show up into an audience and make people feel something on command for, you know, on demand, like that's worth a ton. And that's how you're going to build that uh, prominence on social media is showing up over and over and over and delivering something substantial. And that requires craft. Mm-hmm. That requires mastery. Yeah. That requires practice. Uh, so to me, uh, I would lean far away from, I don't care how good your personality is. I think even <laughs> if you have an amazing personality, it's really winning the lottery because so you know those charming people in high school that went nowhere, right? And they were so charming. They were as charming as Tom Hanks, but where are they? You know, they're out there with Wilson Uh in in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. You know what I'm saying? So I don't, don't, I think, you know, even if that's part of your thing, your personality and, and, you know, you're maybe you have that charm or whatever, go ahead and do the hard work of developing the ability to deliver real value. Yeah, um, cause it'll only serve you and only, you know, stack the deck in your favor. Wow. Uh, You know, it's when I hear you talk about this, I'm like, wow, this is this is the kind of stuff that
0: people really need to hear because you know, there's so little emphasis on craft, and this is something that I was writing about Mm -hmm. the other day because you know, we hired a marketing strategist to help us kind of understand, and you know, when we did our survey over the people in our our email list, many of them said they wanted to build audiences, and I was like, okay, you know, I'd resisted the whole idea of building an audience a course about this for a long time, and then I kind of went and looked back and I said, you know, the most thing the thing that is most left out of every course about this is the actual part of developing your skills and changing your habits. Like, none of those things are actually included in most of the courses that I've taken. Yet, those are the foundational elements. Craft. You know, there's so little emphasis on craft and so much on tactics.
2: Totally. I mean I was reading a marketing book which I you know I find to be uh you know it's a great book yeah. and it had some really good points but the fact of the matter is you know they were attributing all of the success of Walmart and Amazon and Apple to marketing and I was like yeah I do believe marketing is a part of it I really really do uh but at the end of the day their their the craft of their business mm-hmm. was off the charts they knew how to exploit exploit real value or, or deliver real value to people that they were looking for at a tactical level. And you can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. Um, one, one thing I want to just speak to real quick is I do really, really believe in, I went through a season of the podcast where I was just going harping on about craft, putting in the hours, 10,000 hours, all that kind of stuff, like really diving into how important it is. Like if you want to be an illustrator, like, you might want to try to draw anatomy and do some live drawing and you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. If you're into music, you might want to learn some music theory. You might want, you know, whatever reading music. But I think that, uh, and I do think that is super important, but another conversation that I think is just as important and is more important to get right before that Mm -hmm. is, is taste. Mm -hmm. And I use that word, I define it with, um, as, kind of a new definition, or an addition to how it was defined, but as creative intuition, and I think that's an innate thing. And if you, you should build your foundation on your taste, and I'll just explain it this way, like, you can be, you can learn the skill of a guitar, like all day long, you can shred it. We all know these people, You know, Uncle Dan, he can go up and down on the scales, right? But we wouldn't say he's a good musician. If I said, what's a good musician? You would probably start by saying, well, they're good at the instrument, but how many people are great, phenomenal at an instrument, and have never been able to do much with it because they didn't have good taste, they didn't have good intuition, on what decisions, those binary micro decisions of this note will be paired with this note, will actually make me feel something, yeah. then how many people could barely play three chords and moved millions of people by their that intuitive sense of, maybe if I paired this with that, it would work. So I, I like to kind of, uh, I like those two things working in tandem. I think it's something about that push and pull of, What's that innate? Do you have an ear for music, an eye for pictures, a a tongue Uh for food? Like, what's that innate sensory thing that you can register? And then, yeah, dive into the 10,000 hours on that
0: thing. Well, it's funny you say that because I think that for me, having grown up as a musician, like, I don't see words on a page, I hear sound. And right. when I have a, it, yeah. so it's, it's, I guess it's not surprising that my primary sort of, you know, creative outlet has been a podcast where I'm listening to people's voices all day long. Um, yeah. So, you know, for me, it's like, oh, I'm figuring out how to make music out of words, whether it's through dialogue or, you know, words on the page. Uh, one thing you brought up three things earlier in our conversation yeah. at the beginning you talked about style, voice, and point of view. And uh-huh. I think you kind of touched on the style piece just now. Um, Let's talk about yeah. voice, let's start with point of view, and where I want to start is with a quote that I heard from uh, one of our former podcast guests, Justine Musk, who is also Elon Musk's ex-wife, uh, and she said, if you have a bold and compelling point of view, it's going to piss some people off. So, sure, I'll let you take it from there.
2: Yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm glad you went there, because I also, I believe taste is synonymous with point of view. So, the idea is just that you have uh, an opinion of, this is good, that's bad. And if that, if that is a, if that spidey sense, if that metal detector resonates with other people, then you have good taste. Yeah. And that idea of, you know, making like Robert De Niro says, the acting is just making choices. It's just like, what are you going to do with the words on the page? How are you going to play that? And every, and I had actually one of my favorite musicians who did the theme song for my show. His name is Yoni Wolf. He has a band called Why? And he talked about every song is just like a tree of decisions. Like each branch, you go down. It's this binary. It's like should I use that note or that note? Should I use this snare or that eight oh eight or what? You know, whatever it is, and like you're just each little micro decision, each binary thing that you're getting, you're being guided by that intuitive sense of that makes me feel something. I have a, you know, you have a sensory palette for that. And, uh, and, and you gotta, you gotta let that thing be the guide of what you're doing. And that point of view is what will make your work stand out. So you gotta be willing to make choices. Right. But I'll tell you this real quick. So, um, I talk about this on the show I think a lot about how, you, uh, how do you find that point of view? How do you refine it into a place where you can communicate what your point of view is? And I think that uh, boils down to this thing I call the, uh, the bullseye. So the bullseye is, think of a big circle. That's your industry. You choose your industry based on your gift, you know, your taste, as I I call your gift is your taste. And your industry is, do you have an ear for music? Do you have an eye for pictures? Do you have a tongue for food? Blah, 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 all the way down, right? Mm -hmm. What is that sensory thing that you have that you can pick up on the finer notes of that dish, whether it's a song or a movie or whatever? Um, It's registering on deep, visceral levels within you because you got to know it to be able to create it, right? So, that's your industry. Within that industry, you're going to be a particular type of person. You're going to be a, par, a sliver of that industry. That's the inner circle within the industry. That's your market. Who are your people within that industry of film? Mm-hmm. Who are the filmmakers doing the good, important work that viscerally light you up? Those are your people. I listened to uh, Jack Antonoff on, um, I think it's called And the Writer Is, that podcast. And Jack Antonoff's the guy from Bleachers. He writes a bunch of pop songs. People for. Taylor Swift. and used to be in the band. Fun. Anyway, um, he talks about how that was this huge moment of shifting for him when he found his people, the people that had that same palette as him. And so for me, in the illustration world, that's my, that was my industry. The market was kids books. Is like the type of stuff that lights me up. The place where you make money doing that thing, and where the people were doing the great work was in the kids book world. And those were my people And that's where I fit in. But we all know that creativity isn't ultimately about fitting in, although I think the road includes that. It's about standing out in that inner ring, the middle ring of the bullseye, where only you exist. That's your niche. And there's this hierarchy, industry market niche, in the niche is within your people, within, if this is a Dungeons and Dragons party, right? What is your class? Like, What is what are you bringing up? What do you bring into the show, uh-huh. right? What do you bring into the team? It can't be the same thing as everybody else, all your other people. This is where you have to uh, disobey your heroes uh-huh. if you're gonna become your own creative uh, hero and live your own path. And so once you start looking, this is the way I think about it. If it's a, let's say it's the industry of food, this is the easiest way to think of it for me with taste industry of food and the market will say, uh, we'll say it's pizza. Why not? Um, You're in the pizza group. Pizza really does it for you. And you taste all of the people who you think are doing the important work in pizza pie making. And you taste those flavors and you're like, I love it. It's fantastic. But let me tell you what's missing. And that's your niche. That's where you start to have your own point of view and say, you know what, everybody, I love all these pizzas. You guys are making fantastic pizza, but it's missing an egg right in the middle. I need that like yolk stuff to make its own dip for the pizza. And that's my point of view. That's my taste. And I think I like to get granular and kind of systematic with my framework there because I think we often talk about industry market niche. and We interchange those words and it's very vague and it's not very helpful for people just getting started out. And I like to get granular there because I've heard a million people say, you got to have a point of view. And I'm always like, what the hell does that yeah. mean? What do, you, what do you mean? And I, th- I, so I like this kind of um bullseye target idea that helps you kind of visualize and and give hierarchy wow. to how you think about your point of view and who you are wow. Um, and eventually you should be able to get to these places. If you're going to create a niche where you're making a bunch of decisions that your heroes wouldn't, mm-hmm. it's the same where I always this is the moment, the moment Luke Skywalker becomes Luke Skywalker is when he tells Yoda, no, I'm not staying for training. I'm the type of hero that goes before I'm ready to save Lon or Lana, uh, Han and Leia, uh, and, and that disobeying of your hero. That's what makes the hero once, the, mm-hmm. once that happens. And you've got to do that at some point. That's called having a point of view. Ah, I love that. So one thing I
0: I, I want to ask you about, and then we'll, we'll kind of get close to wrapping things up here. Sure. Our mentor named Greg, who, you know, for those of you who haven't heard the interviews with him, we did a two-part interview called How to Live Well and Die Well. And mm. he he kind of dished some, you know, sort of harsh realism and, and tough love on our audience. And I got a lot of that tough love as, you yeah. know, uh, as him working with me as a mentor. But one of the, the the things he talked about is sort of this X factor, right? Like, He said, you look at the Oprahs and the Mark Zuckerbergs uh, and the Steve Jobs of the world or the Michael Phelps. And he said, you know, we don't tell the story of Michael Phelps is Michael Phelps because he was born that way. Because he's that big and he happened to have had a physique that makes him an Olympic swimmer. And he said, you know, you and I, could literally go and we could train every day with Michael Phelps for two years, or we could, you know, attempt to make the Olympics. It was, it was a funny example. And I said, yeah, he's like, yeah, and you and I making the Olympics would be miraculous. I was like, yeah, we could probably make it in curling, maybe. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but one of the things that he brought up, and he said, you know, this is, we don't talk about this because it's not popular. Uh, right. It kind of goes against the grain of all the sort of self-help literature of, yeah. oh, you can do anything. And Choose your own adventure, whatever that you is, want. That is not true. Because he said, we are not all born equal. And at the end of the day, people like Oprah were going to become Oprah because they were born that way. People like Michael Phelps were born that way. People like Mark Zuckerberg were born that way. Uh, and that that's not a... That goes, like I said, against all the sort of literature of self-help. And, and the thing that he talked about was the difference between probability and possibility. Is it possible that you could become one of those people? Yes. Is it possible that you and me, Andy, could get into the Olympics? Yes. Is it probable? No. You and I could go to a basketball court for two years and work one-on-one with LeBron James, and I can guarantee you, at least for me, I'm not going to be in the NBA.
2: We're not. I, me, Maybe. And can't
0: as a creative that. person, I want to hear how you think about this, this sort of harsh reality of the fact that there is an X factor. And You know, the thing that I've always said is there's one blatantly obvious variable that throws off every so-called formula for success. And that's you.
2: Right. And yeah, I mean, I love that topic because I think it's uh, very realistic. And I think that, um, you know... uh, This is why I like to talk about hierarchy and getting this conversation rather than thinking the binary dual way of is it skill or is it innate talent like something, you know, God given that you're born with or is Mm -hmm. it something you develop or and I actually think it's a sequence of those. And I think the first one in that path should be you should be trying to lead with something innate. And that's why it took me years to figure out what I thought the creative X factor was. And I really believe that it's taste. And I'll give you a little, and I, I'm not going to go super, uh, you know, knee deep into that all over again, but I'll give you a little bit of an idea of why I think when it comes to building your practice on an innate gifting why you should lean into your taste, or where you have in a, a very special helping of creative intuition, and so this is what um, I mean by that. And I got this idea from three different people: Gordon Ramsay, Seth Godin, and Ira Glass. They all talk about taste. I don't none of I've never heard of them. Any of them like uh, dive deep on how essential it is to lead with taste, um, but I, it's almost like they had it just an intuitively a truth or in their path found it true. But Gordon Ramsay was on Jimmy Kimmel's show and Jimmy was like, you know, what do you look for in a young chef that you know they're going to have what it takes to go the distance? And I didn't know what I thought he was going to say like i don't know knife skills plating skills you know composition on the plate whatever it is right precision attention to detail i don't know but everything i came up with in my mind in that microsecond before he answered was skill based right like they can do something and he's like the thing i look for is taste a palate can they tell the difference from good food and bad food, do they just innately have a palate? You know, for if there's a fat like my father-in-law is a a beer taster, and he and he went through the training of that, and you realize that. Like only a certain percentage of tongues have the complex palate to pick up on all the notes. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter how many beers you drink, how hard you work at it. If your tongue doesn't have the taste buds, your tongue doesn't have the taste buds. That's, that's the end of the story, right? And so um, that's what Gordon Ramsay looked for who's got the palate that can hit, pick up on all the notes and kind of know the difference between why this is good and why that's bad. And that's an intuitive thing. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for music. I think about, you know, Billy Corgan all the time. It's like nobody heard Billy Corgan in music class singing and thought, you should be a singer for a living. no. Because skill-wise, it wasn't all there. But in terms of taste, at least for that time in the 90s, he had a palate. He had a sense of like, you know what? I don't have a huge range, but if I do this with it and that with it, you know, it's just like a punk song. You're like two, three power chords. If you know what to do with it, if you have the intuition to lead. So for me, I, I try to get into that as like, And and taste, I think it's it's not about what you give, it's about what you receive. And I think about the golden rule when it comes to creativity and comes to talent. It's not so much about what you can, it's not, nobody picks up a guitar in the guitar shop. We're all looking for that moment where you just pick up an instrument, whatever it might be, you know, a paintbrush or what have you, and be like, Oh my gosh, he's a virtuoso right from the first second. No, like that doesn't happen. You got to put in a little bit of time before you can tell whether you've got something special or not. But if you're looking for a place to build a foundation, I like to build it on that idea of the golden rule. You know, I always hear, you hear this do unto others as you want done to you, and I always thought that was about like being nice, but I actually think it's the secret of the universe. It's the secret of life is that you're what you're out there doing for others, it's based on your own receptors, your own taste, your own palate. And you say, what do you have this visceral nuanced? Like when, like for me, When people give me affirmation or they give me a a pep talk or there's something that really lights me up philosophically and it changes my paradigm and all of a sudden I'm lit up and I've got the power of the universe, I'm so, so sensitive to words, like a deep sensitivity that I I have a feeling of this is going to work, that's not going to work. And that sensitivity is where I speak from. And so I think if you're going to think about innate talent, where to build it, is you start with what you viscerally receive. What do you have those deep receptors for? If you know this is good stuff, that's bad stuff, this is the really good stuff, and you can sort through all the choices, then you'll be able to then, then develop the craft and the skill. That's how you become a superstar, in my opinion.
0: It's funny. It makes me think about this is one of the reasons I will never outsource my guest selection.
2: Right, anybody? Because you—that's your taste. Yeah. That's you have the thing that says, "Now that's a guest."
0: Yeah. Oh, people have asked a, a dozen times. They're like, "What is it?" And I always say, if there was a formula,
2: it wouldn't be unmistakable. Damn right. That's it. And, uh, the, and that is the thing that you never—whatever it is—that your is your taste, is your receptor, is that thing that is—you build the entire business on that, and you never outsource it, because that is the key. So
0: you've obviously you've gotten to do something. I think many creative people dream of doing that is to, to make a living from their art. And yeah, you know, it's funny because I think people think there are no downsides to this. Yeah. I was having a conversation the other day with this guy, David Frangioni, who his clients are like Aerosmith, Shakira, uh, all sorts of people, you know, I mean, Every, yeah, people that everybody huge. heard of. And one of the things I asked him was, you know, what are the downsides? How do their relationships change? And he said, you know, like their inner circles actually get smaller despite the fact that they have millions of fans because they don't know who they can trust and who mm. just wants something from them. But that's sort of an aside. And I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that. But as somebody who's gotten to do this, you've gotten to work with big companies, how has your definition of what it means to be successful as a creative evolved with time?
2: That is a really good question. And uh, uh, there's two things I want to say that now no value judgment on whether panic at the disco is good or bad. Uh, (laughs) I didn't grow up listening to them, but I have my kids are into their new hits. And I've, you know, I have enjoyed them purely for, I love a good comeback story. Mm. I love that, like, they were at the peak of emo, emo tanks, and now they're making singles that are bigger than any song they've ever made, and I'm, like, rooting for them, because I just love creative people, and I love when they're winning, and it just makes me super happy. But he has a, a line in one of his new songs about something like, if you don't know who you can you don't know who you can trust then trust me you'll be lonely and it's about this idea of you know once you start getting success uh all of a sudden all these people are coming out of the woodwork to get a leg up and network and and all that good stuff and you know i've experienced a little bit of that and i i kind of relate to that and i understand it and i think you end up getting you do get really uh picky with who you're going to give your true vulnerable self to and those you know you get you get picky about you get very particular and intentional about your boundaries and Mm -hmm. what things you're gonna share and what things you're not and how you're gonna help people and how you're not gonna help people or whatever. Um, And so I totally relate to that. Um, But then when it comes to uh, how your metrics change, you know, I've experienced a lot of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing. So for me, uh, creativity at the beginning, knowing that that was kind of my superpower Uh, I knew that I had to lean into that to succeed as a dad and a provider and a husband and and just a human uh, contributing to society. I knew this is kind of like one of the only things that I have that I can make a living on. And so the first decade of doing my illustration career, so much of the success was wrapped up in, can I pay my bills? Can we thrive financially, right? And so you know, ages 18 to 28, I was pretty consumed by that, you know, in a lot of good ways and a lot of not so good ways, I'm sure. But, um, after that kind of got stable and the kind of dust of the desert started to fall off me and I started to kind of, um, not feel so desperate, uh, and, and I've been thriving for the past, I don't know, seven years probably. um, All of a sudden, my metric for success really did change. And now I'm not so motivated by money, and I, you know, everybody needs it, but it's not my main thing. Now I'm much more uh, motivated by resonance, and I want to be able to tell stories that change people's perspectives and uh, I want to do that because stories did that for me and I believe in the power of you know analogy and mythology and philosophy to illuminate people's minds and I think if you get the right analogy or the right poetic way of saying something in the right sequence that you can actually switch somebody on that wasn't switched on you know that happened to me with my English teacher it happened to me with uh, you know discovering Modest Mouse and Michelle Gondry's work and all of a sudden like I'm a different person because of these stories that were told to me. And so now, you know, although I think I'd love to go break into the, you know, entertainment world and make and make shows and and do all kinds of, and I'm exploring all these different opportunities that I'm sitting on right now or working through. But ultimately, I feel like I will always want to, I do a lot of public speaking, and I think I always will want to be up on stage because there's nothing more, uh, there's no higher level of success than to be able to tell one of my analogies, tell one of my stories that I've crafted for a very particular reason and watch me hit the target, like, or the risk of not hitting it. It's just so thrilling. To, to bomb. It's, it's very thrilling, but it's also, it's even better when you get to that punchline of this analogy and you hear an audible, oh, or, you know, nodding of the head and all that. Like, that, to me, that is ultimate success. And I just want to do good enough work over, it's like Judd Apatow says, he's like, I don't care how critically acclaimed my movies are, I want to do good enough movies where they keep letting me make them because I just love making it. And to me, that's success. I want to be making great enough telling great enough stories and and doing good enough speeches and talks that i just keep getting invited back to do them and people keep showing up to to hear them like that's that's all i want to do
0: amazing uh well i have one final question for you which is how we finish all of our interviews here at the unmistakable creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable
2: Mm, that's a good question And I'm really, really, really really chewing it. Uh, ah, Hmm, that's really good. The things I reach to first are things like authenticity, but I don't. I'm not sure that's it. I think there's. uh, I think what it is is self-actualization. I think they. It's. I'm going back to that Dolly Parton quote of. They know themselves and they can do it on purpose. They can show up and um, do it on command. And I think that there's something about, like I was going through that bullseye, that uh, industry market niche thing with a friend of mine. And he was saying all of my examples, he was like, yeah, but every example you're giving, they have that X factor personality, you know, that, that charm or whatever. And I was just quick to point out that each person that we had talked about had a compose Completely, dramatically different personality with different point of view. Some of them were quiet. Some of them were shy. Some of them were loud. Some of them were crazy. You know, some of them you know, were numbers-based. Others were poetry-based, like whatever. And the fact of the matter was it wasn't about what type of personality they had. It was about the fact that they were tuned in to who they were. And to me, that's the X factor. Do you, on a cellular level, Uh, have a deep understanding of your point of view, of your taste, of your history and why you are who you are and what you choose to be. I feel like the people that have gone on that hard journey, the hero's journey of self-actualization, those are the people. There's so many people, I think about it all the time, like there's so many people that have dramatically different points of view to me and I will listen to their podcast because they are self-actualized. There's just something about that that um, you know they've 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 gotten past the what they repressed. They've leaned into who they are and they embody it on purpose and they can show up and command it. That's something that just really does it for me.
0: Amazing! Uh, I can see now why, why Brad referred you as a guest. This has been fantastic. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Oh man. Uh, Yeah. Just a big shout out to Brad Montague. If you don't know him and his work, some of the most important work on the internet, uh, it makes the internet, you know, it's definitely a bunch of ticks in the pros column of the internet, (laughs) uh, which I know there are so many cons, but Brad's work, I wouldn't know about it if it wasn't for the internet. I wouldn't be friends with him if it wasn't for that. And uh, you should definitely go check out Brad Montague.
0: Amazing. And speaking of which, where should people check out you?
2: Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Andy J Pizza. Uh, And if you like listening to all this uh, crazy ranting, then you can check me out at my podcast, Creative Pep Talk, wherever podcasts are proliferated. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?